everyone. I'm Chris O'Connor, and this is Heart of the Matter podcast of the Heart Failure Collaboratory. And we're here today to discuss diversity in heart failure clinical trials. And I'm very pleased to have an outstanding faculty with us today. I'll go around the room and ask you to introduce yourselves. Back again, by popular demand, Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld. Hi. I'm a heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Vanessa Bloomer. Hi, it is such a pleasure to be here. I am Vanessa Bloomer, and I am an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you. Dr. Melvin Eccles. Hello, I'm Melvin Eccles. I'm actually a general heart failure doc, also the chief diversity equity inclusion officer for the American College of Cardiology. Thank you, Melvin. And just for our viewers, Melvin is not in San Francisco. He's in Atlanta. Dr. Nasreen Ibrahim. Hi, everyone. I'm a heart failure and transplant cardiologist, and I'm one of the Commonwealth Fund Fellows in Minority Health Policy at Harvard. Dr. Mitch Sapka. I'm Mitch Sapka. I'm the Section Chief of Heart Failure and Transplant at Nova Heart and Vascular Institute in Falls Church, Virginia. And Dr. Wayne Batchelor. I'm Dr. Wayne Batchelor. I'm the Director of Interventional Cardiology and Interventional Research and Innovation at the Nova Heart and Vascular Institute. Thank you, everyone. And we're really going to tackle the three topics, diversity in clinical trials, the landscape today, what we can do to do better, and are there any specific incentives that might enhance a more representative population in our heart failure trials? We've done well in developing therapeutics and devices in clinical heart failure, but where we've really not made as much progress as we've liked to is the representation of the population, the patients, the citizens who enter these trials. And that really gives us a difficult time in providing meaningful conclusions in the special populations, underrepresented minorities, women, the very elderly, and other populations. So I'm going to start with Dr. Lindenfeld and just say, Joanne, as you look at the landscape of device and drug trials, what have been the challenges? Why can't we have a more representative population? Chris, I think there's a number of reasons. I think probably one that we're trying to evaluate a little more carefully is that many of the centers that participate in clinical trials are not in areas that recruit quite as diverse of a population as what we would see across the general United States. So I think that's an important issue. And then I think a second pretty important issue which the Heart Failure Collaboratory has addressed is that to really recruit diverse populations that you've described the investigators probably need to, at least to a greater degree than they do now, represent the diverse populations that we're trying to enroll. So we know that if we have more women PIs, we have more women in trials. If we have more black PIs, we have more in trials. So I think really trying to encourage participation of those diverse groups in the clinical trial leadership is going to be important. Excellent, Joanne. And I'm going to follow that up with Dr. Eccles. Melvin, when we recruited you to faculty at Duke University, you became part of our Duke community network and built a practice in Lumberton, North Carolina, one of the most diverse communities in the country. Describe how you set up site-based research and the opportunities and challenges that you faced in recruiting representative populations into clinical heart failure trials. Chris, so I think that I completely agree with Joanne, and I would also say that oftentimes clinical trial diversity is more of an afterthought. So after the protocol has been designed, after everybody's figured out what they want to do, and really you should think about it at the very beginning. So whenever I started, in Lumberton, which I have to say, because this is one of the most diverse counties I've ever seen. So Robeson County had a third percent African-American, a third percent Native American, and then a third percent white. And so it was really diverse, the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina and very close-knit, tight family. 
And so really the first thing that we had to do was just get in and be good doctors to them. I think that the more you actually are in the community and people know who you are, the more likely they are going to want to hear what you have to say. I was very blessed to have Dr. O'Connor at the helm whenever I first started to help me push forth the initiatives in the community. And then you have to have really community and the hospitals there. They have to want clinical trial research in the area. And in doing that, we actually had a large heart failure population. My patient panel was 2,500 and it was a wide range of heart failure. And so I think just in general, they have to go where the patients are. And then you also have to make sure that you are a part of the community. You're not just dropping in for a particular purpose. Melvin, you did a terrific job there. Now, the only problem is that we need you to go to about 15, 20 other communities through the country. So we're lining you up for various employment opportunities throughout the country so you can do what you did in Lumberton, which was really special. One more thing. There is the community-based participatory research model. I do think that we need to focus a little bit more with the community in terms of bringing clinical trials as an overall process and not just one specific trial. The communities themselves have to understand the purpose of clinical trial research and be a partner with you as you roll out these trials. That's incredibly important. And so I think as we think about how do we reach areas such as the one I was in, I think looking at it as a community-based participatory sort of situation is probably the way to go. And Dr. Batchelor, you've thought about this a lot in not necessarily in the heart failure trials, but in interventional trials and did some great work around the platinum diversity registry and database. Tell us specifically why we've underperformed in recruiting underrepresented minorities in clinical trials and what you've identified as a potential solution. Thanks, Chris, for allowing me to participate in this interesting webinar. So several of the speakers have already commented on some of the issues related to representation within the clinical trial leadership. I think that this is really important. Dr. Lindenfeld has nicely stated the importance of this. I think until we get very good representation across all aspects of clinical trial leadership on steering committees, DSMBs, et cetera, we'll continue to struggle with representation in terms of patient enrollment. So very important point. Number two, Dr. Eccles mentioned the importance of sites. How we select the sites, perform and enroll in clinical trials is critical to the diversification of clinical trial in general. The demographics of patients will generally follow the geographic location of the sites. So we've got to do a good job of being intentional about our site selection to ensure that the diversity of the patients is represented through site selection. Historically, we've tended to go to sites that have performed well in research and have been previously identified by sponsors and academic thought leaders. We've got to think a little bit outside the box by looking at new sites or training new sites and developing existing sites to enroll better when they have good diversity. There are some other impediments to enrollment that relate more to patient issues. There is still a lot of mistrust of research, particularly in underserved communities such as minorities. We've got to dispel these myths. We've got to do a good job of educating the populace as to the importance of clinical research and how it's conducted and that it's done in a manner that protects patient safety. I think we've got to do a better job of reaching out to the communities and making them understand more about the importance of research and how it can impact their families, their future kids and grandkids in terms of coming up with device and pharmaceutical data that's most important and relevant to them. And then finally, I wanted to say that the pathway to diversity runs squarely through the United States. It's been shown that studies that enroll patients outside of the United States are far less diverse. 
But the United States actually does a better job in most countries at enrolling both African-American or Black patients and uh, Hispanic patients and other patients as well. So if we don't get this right, the rest of the world, unfortunately, will fall behind. And uh, as given that the clinical trial database is now global, we've got to make sure that our U.S. patients are well represented in studies that are global. Those are just some thoughts, and I'm sure that others on the panel will have some other ideas as well. Thank you, Wayne. A lot has to be done in the planning phase to get this right. And you outlined really three or four important issues. The U.S. has to be involved to a greater extent in the recruitment. The site selection is extremely important and representation on the committees and leadership are very important. I want to ask Dr. Bloomer to comment on the recruitment of women and Hispanic patients into clinical trials, something that I know you're passionate about. What are the unique challenges of those particular patients in heart failure trials? Thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor, for that important question. I'm indeed very interested in this topic and particularly interested in increasing enrollment of women and Hispanic patients in clinical trials. When it comes to women, there are many barriers that have been described. I think study burden is an important one. So pragmatic trials could definitely facilitate recruitment distrust of researchers and lack of understanding of the clinical process also sometimes influences decision-making. Now, specific to Hispanic individuals, there are many barriers to enrollment that are common to other underrepresented groups, but they also have the unique barrier of language and sometimes a cultural barrier as well. In all, I think it comes down to the brilliant point that Dr. Lindenfeld made earlier to overcome the women-related barriers and increase women recruitment in clinical trials you need more women leading clinical trials. And to increase Hispanic individuals, you need more Hispanic researchers providing a Hispanic perspective. I think a very nice example of this is the experience of cardio nerds with trial enrollment. I also have to give kudos to Dr. Melvin Eccles because I know he has been involved in this and probably knows that the statistics better than I do. But CardioNerds, through a diverse group of trainees, have been able to increase recruitment in the trials they have been involved. And it is quite impressive. They have been able to recruit over 50% of women and more than 80% of Black individuals and people of color. This has been a nice demonstration of how a diverse team leading trial enrollment here with professional development can increase equitable trial enrollment. Thank you, Dr. Bloomer. We're going to turn the conversation to policy. Now that Dr. Ibrahim, who was part of our faculty at ANOVA and part of Mass General Clinical Faculty, is taking a year off to really understand policy in this area. Nasreen, can we do at a policy level? One of the things I'm impressed about is how we can do trial after trial and make iterative changes in outcomes. Policy can make sweeping changes overnight. The pediatric patent extension is a great example how children were, again, afforded the opportunity to be in clinical trials and have the advantage of clinical trials because of that process. And there's many other examples how policy has been favorable. The NIH has that policy of targets. It seems to me to have worked pretty well with a significant opportunity, certainly, to improve. But as you look at the landscape of perhaps the policy of how we approach diversity in clinical trials, what would you say is an opportunity for improvement? I think policy plays a huge role, like you said, in making these sweeping changes. It's difficult, though, and everything costs money. So you have to think about, say, for example, if we're asking the FDA to mandate that pharmaceutical industry has to create a diversity plan. 
So where is this money going to come from? Is it going to come from the FDA? The FDA is going to provide financial incentives or is this going to come internally from the pharmaceutical companies to create these diversity plans, just like the NIH asks for what your diversity plan when you submit a grant proposal. We can also think of the FDA providing grants. We actually just discussed this an hour ago. We had a noon conference on diversity in clinical trials and talked about potentially the FDA providing grants to sites that are not well equipped or as equipped as the powerhouse sites mentioned by several people on this panel to provide them the training, the clinical expertise, the whatever they need in terms of a staff to run a good clinical trial in a space or in a neighborhood or a city that not the usual sites that we decide to include in clinical trials. The FDA can also provide tax breaks, but again, who's going to benefit financially from this, but tax breaks to pharmaceutical industries that have included diverse patient population in their trial. I think one big thing is we keep saying, why is this important? Why do we need to do this? And the professor just an hour ago said, if you have a drug that is for breast cancer, but your clinical trial enrolled 60% men, then how can you say that the drug works? So that's how we have to think about the trials that we're doing and where the money is going to come. But I think the FDA can play a big role in providing incentives to drug and device companies to diversify enrollment. Terrific comments. And just a secret I'll tell you all about HF Action, because of those incentives, and they were incentives that you might not get your grant funded the next year if you didn't hit your targets, HF Action had enough power to demonstrate that actually exercise was more efficacious in women than men. Wayne, you don't need to go on the treadmill tonight, but Vanessa and Nasreen, Joanne, you would benefit from it, but Wayne won't. Mitch, you're sitting there in multiple hats, working as a special employee of the FDA, working as the head of heart failure at Nova. What do you think regulatory policy can do here? Obviously, we've made some incremental movement. It's bipartisan too, which is really exciting. It's rare to see in DC anything bipartisan these days, but it seems like there is a bipartisan belief this has advantages for everyone in the ecosystem, but what can the regulatory agencies do here? They obviously can encourage, they can't mandate. Tell us a little bit more. I think that's right. I think that as we heard from the screen, there are certain things the federal government can do as a regulatory agency within the government. The FDA can only do what it is allowed to by law and statute, but within the confines of those barriers, we can incentivize companies to be more thoughtful about their inclusion of traditionally underrepresented minorities. And we can also make sure that data is clearly reported. So not only in the collection of the data and the incorporation of patients in clinical trials to improve overall equity, which again is the point, right? The point of doing this is not that we can come up with, as you said, in age of action, individually statistically significant differences between subgroups, because that is probably not feasible in terms of an enrollment perspective, the number of patients you would have to enroll to do that for all what you think might be clinically relevant subgroups. But it is to give a general sense that the effect that you are seeing and the safety that you are seeing is relevant in the major populations in which the drug or device or other intervention is likely to be used. And I think that within that, the FDA has certainly a role. And also, if you look at the the 
sharing of data, the communication of data that comes out of clinical trials, that is also produced on the clinical trials communicator information in terms of the demographics that are published for all FDA approved products. So I think that is the role currently the FDA can have. Certainly it could change if policy changes, but I think it is something that is acknowledged. It is something that we have, that the FDA has partnered with NIH and others that can have a more active role in in withholding funding if this is not done and is something that's going to continue to be encouraged within the federal government. Terrific perspective, Mitch, from both angles. I'm going to go back to Joanne here and ask her about, we worked for a decade on a journal together and we tried to look at the way publications were coming in. We often saw that clinical trials did not have representation, women or underrepresented minorities in the steering committees. And you put forth a wonderful editorial uh, suggesting that the journals could play a bigger role in encouraging that publication should come forth, describing the members of their leadership teams and putting as a limitation if they didn't have representation the broad spectrum of clinical investigator leaders, such women, underrepresented minorities, that would be a limitation. Describe that and what could journals do more in this environment? Christian, you were a big part of that. I think what we thought would be that if the leadership of the trial was not diverse, and I don't know that every leadership group could be diverse in every way, but at least if they didn't demonstrate diversity, that should be in the limitations of the study. Why were they unable to have a diverse population? And ultimately, I think that journals could require that to be a statement. It's not huge. It's not really punitive. It's in the limitations. But I think it would first encourage trials, put people on the steering committee who are diverse, which would then encourage diverse enrollment. So I think that's one thing journals can do. I think they could ask editorialists to comment on the lack of diversity in both the trial leadership and the enrollment of patients. That's not unreasonable. So I think every step of the way, every group that has a touch on the conduct of clinical trials can probably do something to improve the way we do it. I think there's lots that we can think about more in the communication venues that we can help the ecosystem building a more diverse community in, in the clinical trials. Melvin, one of the things that you tackled when you were at Duke was what does the study coordinator, the frontline person look like and how important is that? I would say it's incredibly important to the fact that, first of all, a lot of times coordinators are going to be with the patients a lot more than the side PIs are, and they have to have a nature of relation and the ability for the patients to trust. But more importantly, the research coordinator needs to understand the true mission of what you're trying to do. And I think that's really important. I started in Lumberton with one research coordinator, zero dollars. And we were able to be very successful over a period of time. But that research coordinator understood what we were trying to do, the purpose of enrolling underrepresented populations. And to that end, she understood the complete mission. So it's very important for the research coordinators to be actively involved and to be a part of the active team. Terrific. Let's go around the room with one sort of takeaway comment to our audience and really just to answer the question, how can we do better as investigators, as trial leadership, as sponsors in diversifying the population in our clinical trials, ensuring greater representation of underrepresented minorities, women, and other special populations in our trials? I'll start with Dr. Bloomer. 
I think there's a lot of opportunities and I'm really excited that we're having this conversation today. I would say my key takeaway, and I could have many, but if I have to choose one, is that we need to develop a diverse pool of investigators and staff. And we've talked about that. But ultimately, I believe that the gender, race, and ethnicity of the investigators should reflect the communities and the patients that we're caring for. In addition to this, I do think that we should engage more junior generations who have an interest in clinical trials. Senior researchers should somehow provide a platform for junior individuals or researchers who are not only diverse, but also highly motivated to develop themselves as trialists. Terrific. Wayne? I think that emphasis should be placed predominantly on the most important stakeholder, and that's patients. We've got to do a better job of understanding the impediments from the patient's perspective. There are a lot of reasons why patients either turn down research or don't continue to follow up when enrolled. And much of that can relate to some of the challenges that relate to distance to the follow-up institution, the hospital, or the clinic. Some of it can be related to financial difficulties. It costs money and time to participate in research. I think we need to think about that and think about ways in which we can fairly compensate patients for inclusion under the right circumstances. I think we have to work on this dispelling myths about research, as mentioned before. And then we also need to make the sites more capable of enrolling patients. We've got to educate sites, develop new sites, and make sure that those sites are strategically located in parts of the United States that just naturally have access to these underserved populations. And this includes patients who live in rural America. That's a particularly challenging group to access for clinical trial enrollment. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think that finally, we're seeing multiple stakeholders coming together to work on this. We're seeing a lot of interest from the regulatory side, the industry side, academic thought leaders, and the, cardi the cardiology community in general. And we're actually going to have to do a better job of engaging patients as important stakeholders in these discussions and our movement forward. Great sage advice. Nasserine? I was going to say that as we're designing these trials, like Dr. Bachelor mentioned, keep the patient in mind. Make sure that when we're arranging how many follow-up visits are going to be, what we're going to require of the patient, we have to keep them in mind and make it not so time-consuming that it's really not it's easy for somebody that's the CEO of Fortune 500 company to take so much time off work and come in for these appointments, but it might not be for the of less means. So in the design of the trial themselves make them patient friendly and that way we'll be able to recruit more people that won't have to consume so many resources to be part of the work that we're trying to do terrific comments mitch you got to top that oh <laughs> thankfully i don't have to because i'm really just going to reiterate what everyone else has said i think that it is critically important to expand the investigator pool by bringing people not only into kind of site-based leadership, but also clinical trial leadership on a larger scale, apprenticeships within the clinical trial leadership, non-voting members, people to educate, to bring clinical trials to more of the country and the world, quite honestly, to train the next generation of people that are coming from additional spots that are not the kind of homogenous places where they're currently coming from. And then just to reiterate what has been said about patients, there are many aspects of clinical trial design where patients can have input and to improve the overall clinical trial and evidence generation. But it is in this area, when it comes to patient recruitment, when it comes to inclusion and exclusion criteria, when it comes to structuring the clinical trial, when it comes to educating potential patient enrollees, we saw what Adaptable did with having patients on the, really on the front line of it, helping to encourage patient enrollees. 
involving patients in this process in a very aggressive way, I think will do wonders for enrolling a more diverse population. Well stated as always, Mitch. Uh, Melvin, what's the take-home message that so our audience take from you? So Mitch absolutely took mine. So <laughs> it's the, there needs to be a lot of support and career development for the site PI, as well as the research coordinator. I think that's very important so that they can see a path forward. But also in the community, as we're talking about patients, the community needs to understand the results of the trial. Oftentimes patients say, I was involved in this trial. I don't know what the results were. Do, can you give me any information? So letting people know what the results of these trials are, ultimately educate the community. Really good point that we could delve into more at another time. And just like our editorial board meetings, Joanne, you get the last word. So Chris, a job for you. I think the Heart Failure Collaboratory should lead a nationwide FDA CMS group to have something like the Clinical Oncology Trials Network. And within that, you would select diverse populations. And within those diverse populations, there would be salary money, money to trade junior faculty. And that way we would have in perpetuity, a large group of centers across the United States who are training diverse people, who enroll diverse patients, where the communities now understand their input. It's up to me. I think you're exactly right. One of many of my greatest failures has been the inability to set up a sustainable network that mirrors what oncology has done. We tried to do that with the NIH. It's not a sustainable model. We go back to this sites come on, they come off, they come on, they come off. It's like subcontractors working in the housing industry. There's gaps of opportunity. So having a national network of committed investigators that we know can participate in this clinical trial endeavor that's diverse would be extremely important. So Joanne, you got me on that one. And <laughs> as she often did when we were in our editorial meetings, she always got the last word and put me on the spot, but terrific conversation today. Thank you all for being here for the Heart of the Matter Heart Failure Collaboratory podcast. And we will certainly have you all back to discuss this in more detail. Thank you very much.